G'day, friends of the show. Just a quick pop-in to give you an update on what is going on. Sometimes I get lazy and can't be bothered doing my pop-in updates, but today I'm feeling motivated, so here we go. I was just on the phone to my mum. Funny little anecdote here. And I said, hey, mum, you been listening to my podcast? And mum goes, uh, yeah, I, no, I do listen to it. Um, I just haven't really been interested lately. And obviously me, very outraged. I'm like, what are you talking about? You mustn't listen to my podcast at all because it doesn't even sound like you understand the premise of my podcast. And I was like, no, no, I do. I'm like, well, you clearly don't because you've you've said, oh, I'm not very interested in these episodes, so I won't listen. If you were a true friend of the show, like many of you listening now, you would know that the point of the podcast is to step outside of our echo chamber and that often things that interest us, if we follow the whims or the tyranny of the things that interest us, that actually keeps us within our tiny little echo chamber. So if you're a friend of the show, you, like me, are on a quest to get outside of your echo chamber and not listening to that voice that goes, nah, not interested. Ignoring that, doing the double take and going, what? All right, that's the one I better listen to if I'm not interested in it. So, mum, if you're listening, that's the point of the show. Would love to get one more listener in there. Man, you think you start a podcast, you at least have your mum listen to it. Jeez, I've got to rethink my podcast maybe. Uh, But anyway, let's segue to some people that really do get the podcast and they support it so much that they leave a review. Uh, HH Givug has left a review uh, entitled The Best Podcast Practice. Mm. They say, what starts as a listen turns into a contemplative pondering, which in turn stretches me to see another perspective and another human. Jeez, some of these people are better at summarizing the podcast than I am. Ideas Digest has helped me to listen before speaking and see myself in another's opinions, whether I agree or disagree. Damn, I might just put that into the next episode. Thank you, HH Givug. So if you're a friend of the show and you have not yet uh, rate or reviewed the podcast on Apple Podcasts, it would be a great help because as we rack up those numbers of how many people listen, support, and review the podcast, that gives us, as a podcast community, more clout. The more clout, the bigger the guests, and the more interesting conversations that we can have. So thanks for your support on that one. Final thing, I don't actually plug it that much because I do want to keep it a bit of a secret and a little bit under the radar. But I do have, for anyone who's interested a side podcast called, called Oi, Tell Us What You Really Think, where me and a few of my friends, we might chat about what I actually really think and what we what we think and what we're moving through, what I actually thought of the guests, what my opinions are. If you're familiar with the show at all, you know I don't share them. I don't really want to share them. I think it compromises the platform a little bit, which is why if you're interested in this podcast, it is behind a paywall. Now, if you throw money at this paywall, it will dissolve temporarily and you'll be able to pass through to the other side. I don't necessarily encourage everybody to jump this paywall um, because I do enjoy having not many people aware of what I think. But if you're interested, like a few people that have sent me some DMs this week, new friends of the show shooting me a DM and saying, hey, tell us what you really think. What do you believe? And I go, well, you know, I don't really share that paywall, blah, blah, blah. So if you're interested in that, there is that option there. Or if you just want to support the show, that's a good way to do it. Let's face it. I'm not going to be quitting my day job anytime soon, but that's okay. That's okay. I enjoy hanging out with everybody and I enjoy these interesting conversations as so many of you do. So thank you all for your support and enjoy this next episode.
I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. G'day, and welcome back to another episode of the live Instagram podcast called Ideas Digest, where we seek to understand the challenging ideas that divide us in order to open our minds. That's the goal. Anyway, my name's Conrad, and if you're a new friend of the show, welcome. Let me give you a lay of the lands, a quick rundown. Uh, I often chat to uh, quite a few of you in the DMs, which is a lot of fun, and I've learned two Two things about this podcast I've learned myself. There's two layers that it seems to have. One layer is the practice I talk about all the time of listening to an idea or person you disagree with. That's challenging enough. It's challenging to get through an hour and a half of somebody you disagree with. And it's, it's often very uncomfortable. But then it also goes down to a second layer. Because as you're listening to someone who you disagree with, you might want to switch it off, run away, avoid it, argue. But the second layer is if you observe your reaction... Why, and, and, and ask yourself the question, why does this make me angry? Why, why can't I finish the whole episode? That's actually a very interesting insight as you begin to ask those questions of yourself. I'm not saying you'll find an answer, but asking the question is very interesting. Uh, it, it does, it, if, there's, if that's a few too many layers for your Saturday morning or your evening, um, then that's okay. But if you're up for it, we're going to get started on a new episode and we will start where we always begin with the clickbait because that's the most condensed misconstrued portion of the idea and then we expand it from that point i got a good giggle as i was making the clickbait for this one i looked up stuff of my new friend of the show and i was like oh how can i make this super clickbaity here we go straight men enjoy gay sex now is that out of context is that just pure clickbait i don't know but to help me unpack this i want to introduce new friend of the show dr joe court joe thanks for joining the ideas digest podcast Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's it's great to have you on. I'm sensing an accent. I'm going to throw it at the dartboard, which has only two options. You got to be American, and I'm going to be more specific. You got to be in California. Nope, I'm in Detroit, Michigan. Damn. All right, I was <laughs> I hit I hit the country. Completely missed the state. I'm going to have to change some of my assumptions uh, that are coming up. But uh, I know for one thing. Every country and state in America has a Walmart. Am I am I wrong? That's many WalMarts actually. <laughs> many WalMarts. Uh-huh. Um, I I when I was in America, I've been to a few different places. The first thing I did was go into a Walmart and buy a BB gun because as a deprived Australian, everything fun is illegal here. Never had a BB gun growing up, so I went to Walmart. I'm like, I'm getting myself a BB gun. So, oh, Joe, well. if if for some reason we ran into each other at a Walmart and I'm in the walking past with my BB gun and we start and we get chatting and it's that surface level introduction. People listening will never have heard of you or met or met you before. So the surface level question you'll get asked is Dr. Joe, who are you and what do you do? So who am I? I'm a gay man. I'm um, 58 years old. I'm Jewish. I've been um, married to my husband for 28 years and I am a sex and relationship therapist and I have been doing that for 36 years. 
and um, I have specialized in all kinds of things, but male sexual fluidity that we're talking about tonight is really the main thing I've been doing most recently. Okay, that is a great introduction, um, and it's really good because you've given me so many different categories and labels that I can then throw back at you. When we meet somebody new, we often, if we're really honest with ourselves and we don't live in denial, we judge people, we categorize them, we put them in little boxes. Uh, Dr. Joe, I'm not, I'm not opposed to doing that. I'm actually... I'm not saying I'm not opposed to it. I actually think it's an unhelpful practice. However, I'm not above it is what I'm trying to say. I, mm. I often do it. And so what I'd like to do, because I'm under no delusions that I can maybe overcome the tendency to judge people, but I'd like to confess these judgments to you and then you can correct them and then we can move on with all the judgments out of the way. How does that sound? I love it. I'm, I'm up for a challenge and debate. I love it all. <laughs> okay, great. So what I'd... If you really would like the challenge, what I like to try and do is squeeze people into the really tiny box of yes and no. If that's possible, it's, it's really hard, but give that a go. See how it works. Okay. All right. Um, I'm going to start off with a fast pitch because you're, you're looking like you're up for it. Uh, normally, yeah. I start off with a, with a slow one, but this one, this is an Australian one. I'm, I'm going to confess my some of my Australian prejudices to you. There's two assumptions we have about Americans. One is that they're arrogant. That's not the one I'm putting to you. The other one is that you're ignorant. We might think, if some Australians, we think we're better, we might be like, uh, American. Joe, you've got to be an ignorant American. Now, what do I do? Say yes or no? Yes. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> no. Okay. Good. Good. And you can also like flag one and say, oh, I want to talk about that a little bit more. And then we'll, and then we can okay. come back to it. No, but I agree with you on that. Those two things so far. Okay. This one has a bit of a backstory, which I, I guess you can elaborate on. But I did some Googling. Dr. Joe, you must be a Nigerian prince trying to hustle middle-aged women out of their cash. <laughs> no. No. Is there a backstory to this that I've been Googling? There's about? a backstory. Let's flag that. There's a backstory. Okay. Okay. We'll flag the backstory. Everyone's like, what is he talking about? Um, okay. You you're not in California, so I don't know if this one will fly. But I was going to say, you're one of these like liberal cancel culture elites that are often associated with the West Coast. No way. Nope. No way. Damn, I think that's zero from zero. Okay. You've already said it. It was going to be an assumption based on the clickbait. So that's an easy one. You must be gay, I was going to say, but you've already answered that one. Um, I'm very gay. Then <laughs> Very good. Okay. The the uh, next one I have would be well then. You we're talking about gay sex. You can't be a Christian. No, I, okay. no, no. Okay. All right. Now, last one. Some people might have. I'm trying to I'm trying to channel all the different pushback you get, but you can actually enlighten me on some of the labels you get. You, last one. You mustn't understand the very simple biology of the binary biology of male, female, gay, straight. You don't understand that simplicity, some people might think. No. I, if I say, I'm, I'm trying to say I do understand, so is it no or yes? Now I'm confused. <laughs> I don't know. You stick with whatever. Uh, no. No. Okay. Now, Dr. Joe, would you like... Um, what did I miss? What, what labels or assumptions do you normally get? Did I hit on any that you might get, or am I off the, off the ball completely the gay one i get um i get and 
The rest of them, uh, I do not get. Uh, I get the Nigerian Prince one because of what happens with my pictures out there. So yes, that one I get. So so what happens with your pictures then? So uh, for the last, it's more than 10 years now. I keep saying 10 years, but I've been talking about this for a while. Um, I have had a Nigerians, 99% of the guys doing this are from Nigeria. Oh, it's use my from photograph. Nigeria. That was a stereotype. They're literally, wow. I know. And when I first said, when I heard about that, I thought that it was being a, they were being profiled, but it's legitimate. There's a, a woman named uh, who is called Scam Haters. She's on Instagram here, and she I interviewed her on my podcast. Anyways, they uh, take a picture, uh, my picture, this this avatar, whatever this is, and uh, and real but real. I mean, I'm with my sister's kids. Sometimes I'm with my sister, but I'm mostly since I'm gay, I'm mostly with guys, and um, they say that they're me they don't use my name though sometimes now they're starting to a little bit but they don't use well they shouldn't use my name because the woman would google me and find out that i'm gay so they pretend i'm someone else and they get her um to fall in love with him and then they scam her out of thousands and thousands of dollars sometimes mortgages two mortgages wow. it's really really <clears throat> awful and i just find it so strange that it happened like you're in just the picture profile selection book of people in Nigeria going, who should, which picture should we use? Oh, we've only got 10 here. Let's use that one. It's, it's quite, there's a lot of pictures out there. Yours seems to be just it's bizarre. the one that comes up. Well, and, and I've had thought, since discovered that it's a lot of gay men. So they do do it to other guys and they're usually gay because we're not in pictures with women. And uh, I was very embarrassed about it for a long time. I never talked about it. The only reason I started talking about it is Inside Edition, which is an American uh, news show, entertainment show. They reached out to me because a woman had been scammed with my picture and she contacted them and wanted to go public about it. And once that happened, I started to talk about it and I'm not I'm not ashamed of it. I don't even know why I'm ashamed. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> it's this weird proxy. It's like, your, is your image, is your uh, geographical features ashamed or who? It's it's a weird, it's a weird thing. But that was just a, a, a interesting side note that I, I I just found it fascinating when I saw, I saw it's your weird. YouTube video on it. But we digress. We digress. Um, when we're talking about, I've, I've got you on the show under the clickbait of straight men enjoy gay sex. Now, to many people listening, they'll be like, what? Wouldn't that make you gay? What What are we talking about here? Dr. Joe, I want to hand this over to you. Where would you start with this idea of gay sex, straight men, male sexuality? I kind of want to hand it over to you and see where you want to start with it. Sure. Uh, and this stop me if I go in a different direction, you don't want me to, but gay, your sexual behavior doesn't define your sexual identity. That is a ridiculous thing. In fact, my generation and generations before me and a few after me fought really hard in the LGBT uh, movement, the queer movement, to say, don't define me by what I do in bed. Who I, if I'm, I always say, if I never have sex another day in my life, gay sex, I'm still gay. It's not going to fade away. It's not, it doesn't get erased. And so, um, but people think that if you're engaged in same-sex behavior, then you must have some same-sex, then you're no longer straight. But they don't do that when gay men have sex with women or when lesbians have sex with men. They don't say, oh, you're probably not a lesbian. Oh, you're probably not a gay guy. You're, you're, you're safe. <laughs> but when you're straight, it's, they take it away from you for men. Okay. So I'm, yes. Okay. I think you spelled that out really well. Um, so what you're saying is the scenario where if there's, um, you know, people in school or someone might suspect someone's gay and then they get married. They're like, no, nah, I still reckon they're gay. And so you're exposing that double standard there. That's gone. No, nah, they're still yes. gay. I know they're married to a woman, but then if a guy 
had sex with another guy or enjoyed kissing or doing something uh, intimate with another male, you'd be like, nah, I, like, that's it. You're completely gay. I don't care what happens after that. It's like uh, a very sticky binary box that has this almost double standard you've you've highlighted there. And then you've drawn the conclusion, okay, well, we either define people by their actions, which we don't do consistently, or we do, or or there's something else to this definition of of sexuality and identification. Yes. Now there are going to be people, and this happens to me on every platform I'm on, who would say, "Well, they're bi. Stop saying gay. These guys are bi." Uh-huh. Um, and I say, "Yes, there are bisexual men that have sex with men, um, and there are gay men that have sex with men, and there are straight men." who have sex with men and they are not bisexual. They're sexually fluid. They're heteroflexible, um, but they're not gay or bisexual. And so then bisexuals get really angry. They feel like it's bi erasure. It is not bi erasure. It's bi erasure if they're bi, but they're not bi. Okay. Unpack some of those categories for me. Cause I think friends of the show might be listening. They might be like, all right, this is the first time we've ever delve deeply into these various different categories you're probably using um some potentially some friends of the show might be listening and as soon as you use anything to do with the spectrum or fluidity you might trigger them so let's let's unpack some of those terms a little bit more so we understand what you're talking about so there's the categorization of being gay so i guess talk to me about what is it to to be a gay man if, for example, you're taking the action of gay sex off the table and saying, I'm still a gay man. That's a great question. I get asked this a lot on TikTok and I have not addressed it yet. So now you're forcing me to address oh. it and I will. I'm going to try okay. because people oh, say, okay. well, then yeah. what the hell is gay? Then tell me what you think gay is, right? <laughs> okay. And it's good. It's a good question. It's a, I think it's a hard question. That's why I haven't answered it yet. If you take sex off the table, what makes me gay is I'm attracted to men. I feel pulled into their direction. I'm on a beach. I'm drawn to the to the naked images that are attractive to me of men. I feel a, a romantic interest in men. When I'm around, um, not all gay men. I'm not. I really don't like the gay culture. I'm not really in the scene, whatever that is. I'm not. I've never been one of the the gay guys that you would see in the media who would be out and doing all the things that a lot of gay men do. Um, so, but that doesn't mean you're gay, anyways. That it's. See, this is what's hard. It's hard to say. I just know that I am attracted to men romantically, emotionally, psychologically. Mm. Um, my heart, my my genitals, my um, everything screams uh, men for me. I would not want to be in a relationship with a woman. Unpack then. So that's just your you're outlining that there is more to a attraction romantic interest than just physical actions and expression of it so then we move to that level of then you're saying okay so so then what is bisexual then in if we're moving from that to that to eventually end up at what is a straight man that enjoys gay sex so you're asking me first what is a bisexual yes so bisexual, now this is tricky too, because bisexuals, people think, well, you're attracted to, to both genders. Um, yes, but that they may not, it may be multiple genders. So bisexuality, now there's bisexuals plus, which is that it might not be, uh, there are multiple genders. There aren't just men and there's not just women. There's, you know, gender fluidity, there's gender, there's non-binary, there's a lot out there. But 
Bisexuals can be attracted to multiple genders, but they might be only sexually attracted to one gender and emotionally, romantically, and sexually attracted to another gender. So, or they might be emotionally attracted to one gender, to men, let's say, but they're sexually and emotionally attracted to women. So mm. it's, it's different configurations, but they, and let me say this, I forgot this, as a gay guy and bisexuals, it's enduring over time. It's throughout your lifetime. It doesn't change. Um, and it's multiple people. It's not just specific to any one person. Um, mm-hmm. that, so that, that's another piece to it. Mm-hmm. And so then we, then we end up at the level of how do you have a straight man that enjoys gay sex that isn't bisexual? So the straight man that's having sex with men who isn't bisexual, it's so, so that's sexual fluidity. Uh, and by the way, sexual flu. Sexual fluidity can be with gay men, bisexual men, and straight men, and women. It just means that it's context and individual specific. In other words, uh, and actually this is happening to me as I get older as a gay man. So I'll just say, I'll just tell you my own example. As I've gotten older, I'm 100% gay. I'm a gold star gay, meaning I've never been with a woman. I've never touched a woman. You know, I've, I, I appreciate them. I love how they look. But um, in my 40s, I started to find myself sexually drawn to certain women having fantasies in my head imagining her naked looking at her legs i don't know that i could go through with being sexual with a woman but in my entire life i never so you would so i'm my so that's my fluidity that i could i might be able to be sexual with a woman i know i could do a a lot of things that i never thought i'd ever want to do with a woman but it's not every woman i don't walk into a, a mall or a beach or a store and go wow these women it's certain women at certain times in certain places. That's what it is for straight men. It's certain men in certain times in certain places. And it's usually behavior-based. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you've taken this one simple category, and this is often what happens when you get into the nuance. You're going to make people very uncomfortable when you take solved equations and simple categories, and now you break it down and say, well, so you've identified that attraction has these different elements to it, emotionally attracted, romantically attracted, sexually attracted. And then you've also spoken about how, I guess, we as humans change over time or attractions might ebb and flow a little bit. That's kind of the impression I'm getting from this word fluidity being like, at some point you might find this person attractive, but you still might be gay or straight, but this attraction you have experienced, I suppose. Is that a a fair summary of what you're talking about? It's a really fair, better summary. Yes. And so even a bisexual, I'm, let's say the bisexuals mostly, um, only attracted to men sexually but he's attracted to women sexually and emotionally. Over time, he might find guys every once in a while that he's both both emotionally and sexually attracted to. That's a bisexual's fluidity. Mm -hmm. You've you've really um, jut up against the categories that we like to neatly place people within. We we don't love the idea of saying, if you're gay, I put you in that box. Don't you dare jump out of it into the one next to it and then jump and then want to jump back. And so that's kind of right. this, what you're describing. And I guess this is the idea of this spectrum or fluidity that you're talking about. It's, it's almost saying, well, these boxes only serve for a time or for a season or because I suppose what I'm hearing underlying that is that humans change and if humans change then attraction changes and so therefore these hard and fast categories will also tend to change does that sound right yes yes that is right so what 
got you into so pe- some people might be thinking what dr joe court you're talking about all these different categories what do you <laughs> what do you do and what what makes you think you know about this well I am a, a sex therapist and a trauma therapist, and I mostly work with men, and I work with straight couples, but mostly men. And um, in my work with men, these men would come into my office. Sexually abused men would come into my office who would be engaging in compulsory gay behaviors, but they weren't gay. So what they were doing, and they were their perpetrators were males as boys. And so they were returning to the scene of the sexual crime. When you are traumatized and abused as a child, um, that gets that impacts you as an adult is that you end up re- trauma reenactment. So you end up re-engaging in the behaviors that happened to you as a child. And so these men would come to me, discovered by their female partners or just, just uncomfortable within themselves, wondering what's going on with me. And I, from that, started realizing these were straight men having sex with men, but these particular men were doing it based on trauma. Uh-huh. So I guess from your experience then, would you say that perhaps, uh, what, like what percentage do you think of men who might, who might, I guess, jump categories or have experiences outside of their category, if that's the way in which we're, we're putting it, um, would, would that all, always be a result of some form of trauma or no, it, no. No, no, no way. I don't know the percentages. Um, I always hate to base what I know clinically on the general population. I'm going to imagine that most men could could be sexual with other men. It doesn't mean that uh, they've turned gay. It doesn't mean that um, they're that they're even fluid. It, 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 there's lots of reasons men have sex with men. So let me say this next thing that this is important that people don't understand. We have a sexual orientation and we have an erotic orientation. Our sexual orientation is to whom we're attracted to, right? The person. Our erotic orientation is what gets us off. It's what our fantasies are. So your fantasies can contain things that are morally wrong, politically wrong, against your own political values, things you would never, it would be illegal to do if you if you acted on them. That's what makes them hot. They're erotic. And, and so they may even include another gender that you're not attracted to. But in the fantasy, it just gets you off. So people, they don't understand that some people can have a sexual interest, a sexual uh, orientation toward women, but erotically, some of their fantasies would include men. Mm -hmm. Okay. What is it then, I I suppose, in your work and exploring, I guess, the, the... when you work a lot with men, because sexuality, this idea of sexuality, this I've, I've released a fair few episodes about sexuality. We've explored um, purity culture. We've explored um, the commodification, porn, and these sorts of things. And I'd like to get a take on some of them. But I suppose before that, you're unique in the sense that, and the reason why I wanted to have you on the show is because women seem very open about sexuality and talking like so many women my instagram feed is now full of great friends of the show and other women talking about sex hey here's what pleasure is here's it's okay for this and don't feel ashamed for that and it's that women are very open about it but men i don't see any that are engaging in the same conversation i'd love to get your thoughts um based on your experience about male sexuality what are the challenges with, I guess, talking to men about sexuality or that men face with their sexuality? Yeah. 
Well, um, well, so the reason I think women can talk more about sex than men is that women get fetishized. So there's wiggle room for them to talk about it and men get stigmatized. Okay. So both are problematic. I'm not saying women being fetishized is a good thing, but she is, um, there's a, people can have a curiosity. Even she gets to have a curiosity about her sexuality. Men are stigmatized. They get shamed and silenced about their sexuality. And the, the another um, difference between uh, men and women, women are sexual uh, and they're more relational, right? So there's something about that person and the other person that's special between them that's got a bond in some way, even if it's a night and evening bond. Um, men are transactional. It doesn't mean men can't be relational, that women can't be transactional, but men are more transactional and objectify their partners and their and the people that they're involved with, and um, women don't do that as much. Women um, are see that they want to see the whole person, and men are willing to have a transactional thing. I don't have to know your name. We don't have to talk about this. I never want to see you again, and that's um, uh, judged very harshly. Why might that be that men are trans like in, is transactional and then stigmatized? Is it? Uh, like a cultural phenomenon is it a like neurobiological phenomenon what what might why might I don't that think that there's discussion about all of that and I don't know the stigma stigmatization is that men and I don't think we talk about this enough and it's part of my work is men get lumped in altogether men do this all men are like that the me too movement which is a beautiful movement we need to all know about that and and be conscious of that but not every man is a, um, a predator or a perpetrator of the Me Too movement. I'm not. and But we all get lumped together and we get stigma, men get stigmatized. People look at us as if there's something wrong with our the way we express our sexuality. And um, I don't know why that is. What's the output of that? What's the output of having men, I suppose, stigmatized in in that way? Um, they get silenced. They're not talking about it. They be, they're quiet about it. Then what happens is, and this is how, what I see almost every day in my office, women find their, find out about what they like through the internet, through porn, whatever. And now I just had a couple, my last client tonight was a couple where she found his porn and she thinks that it's, she wants the porn and not instead of her, which is not the truth at all. It's the porn and her. And, um, but she doesn't feel that way, even though it's true and there's nothing wrong with their sex life. She enjoys it. She feels his energy toward him. And, um, it's like a mis it's like a lack of communication. That's what I would say. Gay men, gay male couples and lesbian couples. We talk about our sexual feelings and our interest in porn and fetishes and kinks, straight, mixed sex couples, straight couples. They don't do that until it's, it's outed in some way. And is that because of the culture or the way in which men naturally don't feel like they can be vulnerable with their feelings is it like this um is it this way that men have to portray themselves as like very masculine and not talking about these things is, or does all of that play into men's inability or unwillingness to engage in a discussion like this straight men yes Gay men aren't like that. Gay men talk about it. We have it on our apps before I even meet you. If you're on Grinder and I'm on Grinder, I know what kind of sex you like before I even meet you. In fact, I know that before I even know you like long walks in the park. 
You know, and, and I'd want to know that. So if we're going to erot- be erotically mismatched where straight couples aren't like that, a lot of women will say, well, that sounds crass. I would, that would turn me off. I would swipe whatever way, you know, um, on Tinder. But uh, it, so straight men don't have permission to talk without being seen as predatory or piggish. What ideas do straight men hold that you might commonly come across that act as roadblocks for them being able to, I guess, deal with or explore their own sexuality in a way that you're talking about? Well, look, we stop touching boys earlier than we stop touching girls. We teach boys to reject their emotions, reject vulnerability, do not touch other boys, don't let other boys touch you. Um, and so we, 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 we um, marginalize males. And then this man grows up and has no language, has no access to his inner life because he was taught, shut it all down. Don't cry, don't emote, be a man. And so then now he becomes this man and then women look at him and and say, what's wrong with you? Why are you acting like this? There's nothing wrong with him. This is how men, gay, straight or bi and everything in between are trained to be. And so he doesn't have the words. He doesn't have access to understanding it. So then it gets, then men express themselves in four different ways. They do it through sex. They do it through work. They do it through sports and they do it through violence. Those are the four ways men, straight men in particular, know how to express themselves comfortably. So so then what do you do in your work that like is this is this problematic? Would you see those four expressions as problematic and too limited? 100%. And- yes. Well, there's nothing wrong with, uh, there's something wrong with violence of course, although you can be a wrestler or a boxer or whatever, but um, if those, but there's nothing wrong with those outlets. But if those are your only four outlets and you can't say, here's what I'm passionate about, here's the kind of kinks and fetishes or positions or role play or whatever I like, uh, I, here's my emotions, here's why I'm drawn to that, here's why I'm drawn to you. That's the problematic part for men. Mm-hmm. And so, in your work, what what is it that you try and explore with or expand or an idea that you encourage straight men to accept that might open the four ways of expressing themselves into a few more ways, which I'm assuming you're talking about gay men and women having already more outlets of expression? Yeah, they really do. They have more um, freedom around it than men do. So I, what I end up doing in therapy for a lot of these men is um, I call it cracking the erotic code. Uh, And this is true for everybody. We can all do this. We all have non-sexual meanings in the sexual narratives, in our erotic narratives. So the things that get us off usually come from childhood. And um, not everything, but some things do. Many things do. Things get embedded and lumped in to what happened to us in childhood. And then suddenly when our eroticism kicks in, it's things that happened in our childhood that now we, we fetish or that not necessarily fetishize, we eroticize. So that helps give men some language. Um, you want me to give an example? You look maybe confused. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Okay, going. Yeah, so um, this is a. I'm going to say a fictional client. I'm not. This is not a real person. Um, but let's say I had a client who uh, I just did a TikTok on this actually, where um, I talked about uh, a fictional client that was raised by a mother who was fully body able, fully able bodied, but was so depressed couldn't um, function as a person. So. 
uh, she was on the couch and they lived on government assistance. Across the street was a physically challenged woman who um, worked every day, was able to get out and deal with, you know, bringing her groceries into her house and everything. So the little boy is, sees this woman across the street, this empowered woman, but living with a, a depressed, disempowered woman. So when his sexual orientation kicks in, it's two women because he's heterosexual. When his erotic orientation kicks in, it's women who are physically challenged. So the fantasies right the wrong. That's what they do. They anesthetize the childhood pain. And the reason I bring this up is because now the man has something to talk about. So now he can say, yes, okay, wow. And, and, and I tell men come to terms with these things. People come to terms with these things. And they're like, wow, now I can talk about my childhood. This, this is a thread into that invites a conversation. That is a very interesting and challenging thought that I think people, friends of the show might be thinking, might, might need to take some time to think about. When you introduce this idea of eroticism being a window into childhood trauma. And I suppose you would say that everybody has experienced some level of childhood trauma um, in, in their experience or not. No. Well, I would, no, well, maybe, but not everything comes from trauma. So I don't want anyone to leave this ah, yes. episode and think, no, 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 it could just be, so that's, that, 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 that may not have traumatized, you know, disappointed him yes. maybe, or, but, but joyful things can get uh, embedded in your, your erotica okay. too. Yes. Cause that, that is a very interesting idea that, um, as, as we're listening to it as having the, the eroticism, which are two these seem like two concepts people are very hesitant to put together for obvious reasons, eroticism and childhood. Um, I, talk to me about maybe some of the science around this connection between eroticism and it being an expression of things that have occurred in our childhood. Um, say it again. What do you mean? I'm not sure. Um, people... People might be wondering, I guess, because your work being a, a sex therapist, are there any, like, what kind of scientific papers or studies that have been conducted that leads oh. to this conclusion and this connection between eroticism and childhood and, or childhood memories? You know, I, I can't speak to any specific papers, but there is a lot of research on this. There's a really good book called The Erotic Mind um, by Jack Morin. There's another book called Arousal, The Secret Logic of Sexual Fantasies by Michael Bader. And I always joke that I hope his middle name isn't Master because he would be, that would be a, a poor, poor guy, you know. Um, Good marketing campaign. So, yeah, there's a lot of research. There's a lot of clinical understanding. I, I'm telling you, if I, I used to do workshops on this. We would go around the room, get people comfortable about their sexual fantasies. We would talk about what they are. We could do it here. We won't. But if we did on both of us, I could help you understand why you get off on what you get off on. And it would come from somewhere in your childhood. And how, how does that understanding then help? How does it help that if I make that connection, I mean, why bother? How would it help me? Well, so wild. So uh, have erotic compassion for yourself. Your partner can have erotic compassion for why you're into the things you do. Because I have a lot of women in my office who say, I, I'm disgusted. So you're disgusting to me now because I feel disgusted. And why the fuck do you get into this? Like, what's wrong with you? Nothing's wrong with him. This is coming from another place. And it's morphed into this pornography image or activity. It's, it's like a dream. When we, It's all metaphor. 
And if you can understand and have compassion for, okay, I got into this. Maybe a little boy um, wasn't really given much attention in his in his um, house, but a nun gave him a lot of attention. So now he's uh, erotically into nuns because nuns mm -hmm. brought him so much pleasure as a kid, like that kind of thing. So he can mm -hmm. understand it and not think that there's something wrong with him or sick about him. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about your journey, I guess, into doing the work that you do. Is, was there anything that led you into being curious about sexuality and getting into sex therapy? Yeah, so my own gayness, but then also I was sexually abused and I'm kinky. So I could deal with being gay in the 80s, even though the AIDS was terrible. It was the worst time to be coming out and people were dying left and right. It was so awful. Um, but I couldn't push down my gayness. That was too hard for me. So I decided in the 80s to be a heteronormative gay. In other words, I, I put my kink away, even though I still acted on it, but I didn't tell anybody. And I had a lot of shame about it. And I, um, I, I decided I was going to get a boyfriend and a husband and the white picket fence and the suburban house. And I was going to live a normative life. And um, then my sexual abuse started to surface and the material started to surface. And I went to a therapist and she said, the only way I'm going to be able to help you is to know exactly what you're engaging in sexually so that we can crack the erotic code and understand that and, um, and have compassion for yourself and deal with the abuse. So I did. And the more I did that, the more I came to terms with getting rid of my shame. Is, is that what a, what a kink is this, um, like a sexual expression, like a kink is a, oh. yeah. Yeah. So a kink, when, when I say kink, I'm sorry. So kinky would be, uh, so vanilla would be, it's we're relational. We're eye gazing. We're telling each other, we love each other. Uh, we're having, you know, predictable sex, you know, PIV or PIA penis and vagina, penis and anus. If you're gay or whatever, um, you're having oral sex kink is, we might be role-playing, um, I might be a dom-sub, it might be a power exchange, it might be a fetish, uh, a body part, a garment, um, so it's like that. Okay, Non-normative okay. stuff, let's say. So it sounds to me like being open to explore or talk about our sexuality, whether it be kinky or not, gives us, you're, you're describing this like at least from your journey, you being able to talk about and accept yourself sexually gives you this opportunity to address the shame around for you specifically, like the sexual abuse that you, that you've suffered. And then, and then does that, imp <clears throat> does that, I guess, disempower the, the abuse? Cause you're saying some of these things seem to like subconsciously drive us or have certain behaviors and it, and it expresses itself where, and we can't control it. And so are you saying that being able to explore this part of ourselves gives us an understanding of it and an acceptance of it and begins to address the shame of it? Is that all connected or yes. am I connecting dots there? Yes. I feel like that's my, my full-time job. I'm, I'm really not a therapist. I'm really, I mean, I am, I'm a licensed therapist, but I'm all, I'm a shame reduction. I'm just all about getting rid of shame. If you, and that's what I had to do for myself to just realize I'm just a kinky guy. And there have now, they do have research in journals and articles and, and um, peer reviewed things that some people's kinks are their identities. So some people, kinky behavior isn't just behavior sometimes. It's who you are, not just what you do. Talk to me about when you say identity. What do you mean by identity? Is that how we see ourselves? How we see ourselves, how we self-identify. So some people might say, I'm a dom. 
a dominant person. I'm a sub. I'm a, um, I'm a little, you know, littles are like people that want to be treated like children or whatever. I mean, there's all, I'm a, oh, you know, in the gay male community, they have um, pups. Um, uh, people are pups where they like to wear dog headgear and be in, um, you know, uh, their hands are like paws and they're, they have to crawl around and it's very arousing to them. And that, so for some of these guys, this is my identity. I'm a human pup. I love that these young guys are so out and open about it. So, because, and you're saying that you love that because you're, you're seeing no shame around it. What is the, what is the problem of shame then? Shame will cause, contribute to compulsivity. Shame will, will uh, contribute to problematic behavior. Shame for me, like people think, well, if you're, if you have abuse, then, then you're going to have a pathological um, outlet. No, my response to it was heteronormativity. I decided to try to make a normal life. And I'm glad I did. I love my husband. I love our house in the suburbs. I wouldn't trade any of this. But I probably wouldn't have gone this direction had I been more open about being kinky and um, the things that I liked. I would have probably been in the kink community with others. Mm. So shame has a way of driving us uh, like subconsciously that we that we don't know. And, and so if we repress yes. it, it's going to get out or control or dictate our behavior or attractions, whether we like it or not. Yes. It's going to come out sideways. Mm -hmm. How does morality fit into this? This is the conversation that we've explored a little bit on the show where this is where kind of religion and morality might, they might be listening to some of the things you're saying and they might go, well, it doesn't, I haven't heard him talk about morality like once, like, isn't, isn't it, you know, wrong to dominate people? Isn't it wrong? Like, isn't, isn't there, does, is he saying anything goes and everything's okay? And if you want to look at porn, look at porn. If you want to, you know, engage in any sexual activity, then it's totally okay. How does morality weave, weave into this? That's a really good good question. Uh, let me just start with telling you that people that struggle the most with their sexuality, uh, struggle with it because of the moral beliefs they've been taught as children from their religious um, churches, synagogues, whatever. And so there's new research out that, sh that say that show that a lot of men, usually they're white, older males, cisgender males, um, are identify themselves as sex addicts because of their moral conflicts of what should or shouldn't be based on religious teachings where religious teachings have no sexual knowledge and no sex education. Religion ha knows nothing. Bibles know nothing about sex. They, 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 they're sexually completely, talk about ignorant, complete ignorance, and yet they are teaching it like they know what they're talking about, and they don't. Um, mm -hmm. And do I think anything goes? If two people consent to anything goes between the two of them, yes, I do. If I am, if two people are in relationship and one wants to be a dom and one wants to be a sub and one wants to be choked and one wants to be um, spanked and one wants to be spit on and one wants to, you know, eat dog food and one wants whatever it is, I'm making stuff up, whatever it is, and they've negotiated and consented to it, more power to you. Enjoy it. Mm. I have had men come to my office with this understanding, as long as it's talked about and addressed and tell me. Um, that they their orgasms were so powerful after they got rid of the shame, their stomachs hurt. And that makes me want to cry with joy for those men. Mm -hmm. 
with with this idea of consent and then morality, I, I feel like I've connected a dot and and correct me where where I'm going. But we it seems like when people are saying, okay, well, what is morality, Doctor Joe? Where does your moral compass come from? And you've gone, well, I'm going with consent and and what people knowingly agree to do. And I, and I suppose there seems to be this layer in the conversation of morality that that seems to assume whether I think whether people realize it or not, I'm still exploring the idea myself, that we might not always have the capacity for consent. So it sounds like the argument maybe from say a conservative Christian listening to you, they they might say, yes, people consent. They might consent to it, but they don't really know what's good for them. They, they might be consenting to a very harmful behavior and they might, you know, bring it to the uh, this idea of drugs going, well, if you consent to take lots of hard drugs to the point of overdosing, then is that morally okay? And so and so the the moral assumption in that underneath that layer of like morality is saying, well, we don't really know what's good for ourselves, so then therefore consent seems to they they might say consent might not be the standard to measure things by. What's your take on perhaps that idea? I don't believe in treating adults like children. Adults are adults and they make decisions based on their best choices in that moment. And so when someone says, well, and I think what a lot of those people are when they say, well, that I don't know, you know, we got to, they're afraid of pleasure. There are people, this culture, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I will tell you here in America that, that it pleasure, don't eat too much. Don't have too much fun. Be careful. Yikes. You know, something bad could happen. Okay. But I also want to have pleasure in what I'm doing. And I think when it comes to sex, um, people get super uncomfortable when you're enjoying yourself around it. They don't like that, especially if they don't they don't believe in it. Where do you draw the lines then around sexuality and even, I guess, pleasure in general? Because someone might be like, "Well, if you enjoy eating McDonald's, why don't you just eat it as much as you want, whenever you want, and then you'll end up." You know, they'll go, oh, well, you have some bad adverse health outcomes because of it. Where do you end up drawing these lines around going, okay, so it seems like you're saying we don't need to be afraid of pleasure. Pleasure isn't inherently bad. But is there any other criteria no. going? So if someone's like, okay, so I I want to look at porn. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just going to do that. And I'm a single guy. There's nothing wrong with it. What would be your take on perhaps porn and how does that fit into these these boundaries of if pleasure's okay and consent's the standard is how does it play out? I mean, I feel like I'm glad you said about consent. As long as it's consensual, as and see, and I think the bigger issue is that we don't uh, teach in schools, you know, healthy, balanced eating, um, sexual um, awareness and education, right? Real sex education they do in Norway, right? In Norway, they teach it in middle school and high school. They show them pornography clips. And they talk about what's going on in the goddamn porn. And that's what we, the people are so um, upset about pornography, but the porn's not the, the issue. The, it's a symptom of lacking sex education. So I think adults need to be, have access to education so they can make the best decision on what they're going to eat, what they're going to consume, what they're going to watch. The, that's what people don't want to talk about. They'd rather talk mm-hmm. about bad porn and danger of what the behavior is rather than let's educate everybody. Mm-hmm. What's the problem 
in blaming porn? Uh, because porn's not the problem. There, I, there's a porn star, uh, Miles Stryker. He says, uh, we're not making love. We're making movies, right? Mm -hmm. So you watch the same things going on. You know, if you ever watch a horror movie, I love horror movies. Uh, in horror movies, there's a lot of BDSM. There's a lot of women being raped. There's a lot of uh, uh, women usually are the ones being chased down. You don't see people picketing horror movies. You can get it on Netflix. You can go to a store and buy it. And nobody's bothered by this. But but now, wait, they're naked and they're, someone's pleasuring themselves watching this? I got a problem with that. That's the issue. It's erotophobia. Erotophobia is the fear and disgust of sexual pleasure. Erotic pleasure. That's what that is, in my opinion. So, friend of the show, Melinda, who, who we just had on she uh runs a campaign against the porn industry and she would she would identify she would outline some of the adverse effects that having the pornification and the commodification of sex into a culture the impact that's having on young males and and she points to porn being the link between um boys and how they see women how they treat women and all those things what's your response to I guess I think that that's approach. bullshit. Mm -hmm. Bullshit. What? Um, it's easy to blame the porn. If you get rid of the porn, the those boys that turn into men still don't get taught how to treat women. They still watch mo Hollywood movies that teach them poor in poor ways how to treat women. Um, actually, they have so. Uh, you said something earlier. I wanted to base it on. It is not the porn. Uh, I forget what you were saying. I, that's a, a very common. Oh. And she's assuming by that argument that all porn is the same. That's ridiculous. There's all kinds of porn out there. And sometimes there's really good porn that you watch and you go, I want to do that. That's really interesting. I would love to engage. That's exact. And because you don't learn how to do this anywhere else. So human trafficking is terrible. Child porn is terrible. Shouldn't be done. There are unethical porn. It shouldn't be done. But those are, the, if we're going to talk about bad porn, then we got to say human trafficking, child porn, and uh, unethical porn. But there's ethical porn, and there's consensual porn, and there's beautiful porn and erotica. So I, I you can't make a bl blanket statement about pornography in general. I think she's she's going too far. So it sounds like you're you're trying to pull apart a potential category collapse that says. Well, that says one porn is the problem, but you're also trying to say within that statement is also wrapped up this idea that watching two people have sex or the act of two people consenting to make a film about them having sex in an ethical way. You're saying, I think that's okay. I think watching porn is okay. I think, but I, but I want to pull out Perhaps what you'd agree with her on is the idea of this industry that's built on exploitation that um, it, that results in child trafficking and women having their footage ripped and thrown around the internet and, and, and things like that or being trapped in a lifestyle that they perhaps aren't consenting to. That's what you would probably pull out right. and say, no, I agree with that. But you're, you seem to be pulling out a few different elements from that category. 100%. I would never make a blanket statement. I think certain movies, I mean, people are totally fine with their children playing these video games that are violent, going to violent movies. But if they're masturbating to those violent movies, everybody's got a whole different uh, reaction to that.
That's not okay. Go watch it and have fun as long as you're dressed and you're not touching yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good way of putting it. Why? Why then? Why, why is... Because that is a an interesting point that makes you think and go, yeah, we... I mean, and I suppose some people might go, no, I also have a problem with those violent video games. I have a problem with those violent movies and things like that. But I suppose some people might go, might be thinking, yeah, like I watched the Fast and the Furious 10 or whatever they're up to now. And there was like explosions. He killed like seven dudes with his bare hands. And I'm not wanting to like, like, I think that's okay. Let my 15 year old child watch that. But when it comes to watching or touching yourself or being erotic or sexual with media, you're saying that there are similar things. So why are we treating them differently? Why do we treat them differently? I think people are uncomfortable. I think that uh, they're erotophobes. They're uh, they're not talking about their discomfort with self-pleasuring, masturbation. A lot of straight couples don't talk about masturbation. I, I'm, I'm shocked when couples have been together 10 years. I, I And I'll ask them, do you masturbate? Oh, we never talked about that in front of each other. What? You know, like that's my reaction. Like, what do you mean? So, um... There's is that, that a cultural thing? Are, is that a... I, I think it's a straight cultural thing. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I know here it's a, it's a straight cultural thing. Gays and lesbians talk about it. The queer culture talks mm-hmm. about it a lot. We do it. We love it. <laughs> you know, and we're not ashamed to talk about it. And, and it's just, it, I just think that what the problem isn't these so much these movies and the, the pornography or not. It's the parents not educating their children. And so then I started to talk about, well, then let's educate children. And people are like, don't talk to my child. I'll, I'll deal with my child. But they don't. They don't. Hmm. Um, I do want to say one thing if I could. Oh, go ahead. Yes. No, no, you go. Um, there's a there's a thing that's sitting here, and I want to address it. Are kink trauma based or sexually based? Can kinks change as trauma is healed? I want to just, because we were talking about that earlier, and I want to address hmm. that. Not all kinks are trauma based at all. Um, and... What happens is, even if it is, let's say it is, after the the sexual trauma or whatever uh, trauma that contributed to the kink is healed, often, more likely than not, the person is still going to want to get turned on by that kink. So people get frightened by this. Like, what do you mean if my uncle did this to me and I didn't want him to and it was horrible then, why would I like, why would I want to still participate in that today? Because what your uncle did when you were a kid was non-consensual, was a power play over you, and you had no choice and no control. Now, as an adult, it's gotten eroticized, and you're in control, and it is consent, and you get to play with it. It becomes yours now, even if it comes from somewhere bad. So I just want to make sure people hear that, because people think, oh, my God, if I do trauma work, I'm not going to have this kink anymore. That's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Do you think this avoidance that I think culturally American and Australia are pretty similar. We like to copy everything you do. Um, oh, you do? And so, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> look at our politics. We're just lockstep a few, five, 10 years behind. Um, but I think, do you think this avoidance, so like you've said, okay, it, it sounds like you're saying if, if we're pointing at porn to be the problem, that seems like a... Pr- you, you, you'd say, I don't believe that to be the problem. You believe educating, open conversation, self-awareness, self-exploration, understanding and moving away from shame, all those elements that I feel like you've spoken about, that 
will then allow people to have a healthy engagement with or without porn and in, in sexual relationships is are we hiding are we hiding when we say don't say that to my kids or my students and and don't they're too young for that they might say you're now over sexualizing too young are they hiding from their own fears or is this an expression of their own trauma around sexual? is that perhaps why why the the pattern continues yeah it is that nobody talked to them about sex uh they learned early to not talk about it so they're not going to talk about it with their own children and it just perpetuates and perpetuates yeah children can learn about sex at their developmental level teenagers can learn about sex at their <laughs> developmental level um yes you know and um yeah. Uh, Can yeah. you, they might, people might listen and go, okay, so you're telling me that it's okay if my 14 year old, 15 year old, 12 year old, 13 year old, and I'd, I'd be happy for you to unpack your, when you're saying developmental stage, but they might allude to, no, I think you're over-sexualizing too young and this can have adverse effects. What can you do damage from over-sexualizing too young which would be the essence of, yes. of that point there. Uh, yeah, I'll explore that for me. Yeah, I think that, yeah, oh, for sure, right? So I think you could do damage by not talking about it, and you could do damage by talking about it when a child's not ready to, to learn it, right? And every parent knows their own child, or at least hopefully is attuned to their child in some way. And I, and I hope people don't leave here thinking that if you have your own family values, then teach your child those family values. But have those goddamn discussions. Don't not have them. And, and, and learn about what's developmentally appropriate to talk about with a 10-year-old differently than a 16-year-old. That's a parent's homework, you know, and they, they're not doing it. So if I connect potentially some of the ideas that friend of the show, Melinda, uh, was speaking about and the ideas you're talking about, there, there seems to be a bit of overlap. And I think Dr. Tina, who I had on the show as well, was also talking about these developmental stages. You got to have the conversations, you got to have them frequently, you got to be open about it. Because it seems what you're really pushing against is this, is the reaction to our fear of it is to shut it down, never talk about it. And that has the worst adverse outcomes possible. So it's, it seems like potentially the problem or the challenge that Melinda's probably talking about where you might overlap and you might agree is, is this area of the accessibility of porn is so perverse that that nice scenario that you outline there when the nine-year-old is ready, he's going to have that little conversation. And then when he's 11, that little conversation. But now with the accessibility of sexually explicit material, that nine-year-old is going to go to school and his mate is going to go check this out. And so the parent is no longer in control of those conversations. And then I suppose that people might be hearing you say, well, we education is so important. And so it might be this accessibility is forcing that conversation to happen earlier and earlier and earlier, whether the child is ready or not. Does that sound like a point where yes, you might align? It does. Yes. And, and it's not going to go away. So better to have them sex educated, even if it's a beyond their developmental, because you're right. And, and here's, we have studies that when kids are doing their homework, they're going back and forth to porn. They're toggling back and forth 
back and forth to porn on Reddit, on Tumblr, on all kinds of things. And they're watching all kinds of things. And parents aren't watching. They're not monitoring their, their computer screens or their histories. So they don't have a sensibility about what children are watching. So, yes, children have more access to porn than they do sex education. That's just cruel. It's cruel. Mm. And to connect what you spoke about before to this exact scenario, we single out porn here as being presented to children too young or before they're developmentally ready. But almost everything is now, whether that be violence, whether that be excessive commodification, consumerism, all of these things seem to all be in that category where the only defense, I suppose, of it is education. And if we neglect that, it sounds like you're saying education, it's the only pathway you we have left now. I, I think it's always been that way. Um, yeah, you know, I, I remember finding people's porn that I babysat for, and it was BDSM porn. And I wasn't ready to see that. I was like 11 years old. I will never forget it as long as I live. I was like, what the hell is this? Now it would probably turn me on. But back then it scared the hell out of me, you know, but nobody talked to me about it. I know it's not the kind of porn we see now, but it was still BDS porn and it was 1977, you know, or less. What do you then, what do you think has led you to this? Because it all seems to be under this umbrella term, which has been very politicized. Um, And perhaps when, when I think when terms are politicized, most people who then hear about the term don't understand entirely what it means and i'm talking about especially when i watch america when when i hear the conversation around critical race theory and these new like buzzwords where i'm like geez that sounds like an academic term it's being thrown around in the political sphere and it becomes it becomes a word that that becomes a proxy for whatever political agenda you're trying to move so i believe spectrum has become this similar like a special uh a sexual spectrum um or sexual fluidity the same thing has kind of happened to to that word. It becomes synonymous with certain political views. Is this idea of sexual spectrum and sexual fluidity, is the acceptance and understanding of this idea what flows on to everything else you're talking about? If we can't get around this picture of sexuality that we spoke about at the top of the show where you broke down those different categories, does that limit our capacity to understand what you're talking about later on in the conversation? I think it does. I really do think it does. And that's why I love that you're not, you and I are having this conversation. What is sad to me, I, I mean, I don't know if this is what you mean about political, but I know that a lot of these social media platforms are trying to shut it all down. You can't spell the word out. I can't say anus and penis on TikTok. I have to say a manhood and a butt, butt, butt sex, fucking butt sex on there. You know, a, a like I'm talking button. like I'm a school kid, right? And people are like, why are you talking like a school kid? Because I'm on fucking TikTok and they won't let me say these words because they're afraid. I don't know what they're afraid because kids are on it. Kids should learn the word. Don't call it your pee-pee, call it your penis. You know what I mean? So there, there's a lot. I know I, it's just ridiculous. No, I, but I think that is an interesting illustration to exactly what you've been talking about because perhaps this is analogous to people blaming the porn when you're trying to blame everything around it, culturally around it. So don't <laughs> blame the word. So I can not swear and that's okay. I mean, I, growing up, you'd, you'd listen to the radio and they'd bleep every F word, <laughs> but then they'd be talking about 
explicit sex acts and I'd go, oh, well, they didn't use the F word. So are we like, are we okay with this now? Is this the, so you're kind of pointing out the, if we try this, the censoring makes the education even more dif- difficult is what I'm hearing. Yes. There. Yes. And let me say something about a boy's and erectile. Cause I know people think there's this thing called porn induced erectile disorder uh, where people are watching Ooh. too much porn and it's causing okay. them to have uh, erection problems. Bull. Shit, that's not what it is. It's the lack of sex, edu- sex education, number one. I've been saying that the whole time. And it's their anxiety that's in the way. So when, when guys lose their erection or women have performance anxiety too, where they don't lubricate and they can't get there because they've lost erotic focus because they've gotten a spectator about toward themselves. They have higher levels of anxiety because they don't know what to do with this other person in the room. They're, they haven't been taught how to negotiate sexual consent and sexual, you get into this and here's what I want and here's what you want. So erections go away. Women's uh, desire go away. And people, Porn is easy. Porn is always available. It never has a headache. It unconditionally gives. You start, you stop when you want to. You don't have to negotiate shit with porn. But with a person, there's a lot of negotiation. There's a lot going on there. And that anxiety makes you go, oop, I don't want to do this. This is this is not or this isn't hot to me. So mm-hmm. it's easy to blame the porn instead of teaching children and teenagers uh, what sexual health looks like. Mm-hmm. Yes. What stands in the way as from where you sit from people embracing or understanding or accepting the definitions that you've outlined on sexuality and gender fluidity and sexual fluidity. Uh, I think people, uh, their, their own personal, uh, uh, journeys. So the, my biggest critics are gay guys. In fact, I just saw something earlier that was on there when we were talking about straight men who have sex with men, sexually fluid men. And somebody wrote in there and said, and I don't know who it was. I'm assuming it was a guy, but it may not be. Why do straight men have to cling to their straight identity when they're sexually fluid? So that person has this belief mm-hmm. that there's something wrong with that straight guy that that he he's clinging to his, look, I'm a gay guy who's sexually fluid. I'm not clinging to being gay. I'm gay with some sexual fluidity. Sexual fluidity is not its own orientation. So what happens is a lot of gay men think that I'm keeping uh, gay guys closeted and bi guys closeted, that these straight men are really gay and bi because that's what they thought they were before they came out. It's very typical that gays and lesbians think that they're straight before they come out because we're in a heterosexual trance. We're taught that we're straight. We're taught to um, that we have no permission to explore anything else. So I think that what gets in the way are people's own, and this is going to sound terrible, um, but it's, I call this being alpha stupid. Um, it's really, there's another word for it. I know it's terrible. I'm a therapist, but I, I'm telling you, it's <laughs> like, I'm, I be, what I believe in my opinion outweighs any science. You're 35 years in the field. That doesn't mean anything. My opinion means more than that. Okay, alpha stupid. If that's what you want to think, there's actually a word for this. It's called Dunning-Kruger. My husband said, you shouldn't say alpha stupid. You should say Dunning-Kruger. I'm going to say both. (laughs) Is that your opinion? And that's what's in the way. People's opinions rather than them Mm. opening their ears and their minds to what the science and research and what the people are saying. I'm hearing the game of categorization. And I think in the morality question, not to dismiss it or take it lightly, but I think what what is wrapped up in there that perhaps 
as you talk, it might be exposed a little bit, is this necessity to have the categories on which I place the world being the category that you identify with or within. So I see this, you see this play out on the very basic elemental political level. I always call the political level, uh, especially today where it is two binary categories and it is not the nuanced necessary argument that needs to have. But this is the LGBT world has been embroiled in this for quite some time when it comes to gay marriage, transgender, bathrooms. Suddenly bathrooms is the proxy. It's like Donald Trump's wall. It's the proxy for all of these issues. Um, And it's actually really potent to it. Like we like to simplify these things, but it sounds like we the struggle perhaps people might have, and I think we all have it. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, it's this, it's this political group or it's this religion. But specifically to what you're talking about, we have this idea of saying, I think that, and perhaps the person in the chat group might be what you're talking about there, saying that's a straight person just trying to cling to a category. So that's their experience and their category going, no, no, well, they're, they're bi or they're gay. And I want to put them in that category. But then that straight yes. guy's like, no, no, like I'm re- like, Hey, maybe I'm doing that. But that other person might be going, no, no, I'm legitimately straight. But what we have is somebody trying to impose that category. And that's what we, that's what we don't like. That's what we see wrapped up in. Right. Uh, the transgender bathroom thing. It's saying there are only two genders in my whole life. There's penises and vaginas and they're the only two categories I have. And then when uh, people like yourself come along and saying, well, actually it's quite a complex tapestry of various different psychological, physiological, biological, uh, sociological conditions all wrapped up that express in different ways. They go, nah, I want to impose my category onto that. What's your take on all of that? Oh, no, I agree with that. And you know who the worst are? This is going to be shocking, maybe, maybe not. It was shocking to me when I started to get more into social media. Uh, the LGBTQ community is the worst. They're, they're identity police. I'm going to tell you what you are. Uh, don't tell me who I am, but I'm going to tell you that this guy's gay, this woman's straight, this woman, whatever. It's like, wait a minute. How? Why are you doing this when you didn't want it done to you? I never wanted it done to me. Why? And and it's really sort of like, I don't really understand it. If it's because the oppressed oppress, I don't know. But I know that the younger generation are, um, feel very, um, what's the word, righteous around uh, what they think are labels that should be put on other people. And it's kind of Mm. shocking. It's, it seems to be that trap that, we all like to think we're the exception to the rule, thereby proving the rule in that the, yeah, like you said it, the oppressed oppress and that cycle kind of continues that same fundamentalism that caused so much damage. We've had um, gay friends of the show, um, queer friends of the show talk about their experience growing up in religion um, that has caused a great deal of trauma. But what you seem to be pointing at is that many often then, if, if, the, if the trauma was caused by someone imposing overly rigid categories on somebody else and casting them out and treating them a certain way because of the category they hold, often we are all susceptible. This is the thing to perhaps think about if we're holding up the mirror. We're all susceptible to that same trend of going, 
am I doing this? So I'm not a fan of someone doing that over there. That person's wrong. But potentially in my condemnation of that person, I might be engaging in the very act that I'm condemning myself. Yes. It's really, it's crazy, actually. If you were, Dr. Joe, as we, as we sum up, if you were a door-to-door salesman, you know, America's going through some hard times, you pick up a door-to-door salesman gig, and you're selling stocks in an idea, in a concept, in, you're selling stocks in perhaps not holding an idea. What would that idea be? You're trying to sell one thing that might help journey people to where you are or, or some of the understanding that you have. What is that idea? I guess I'd say the idea is that things are nuanced. We that we didn't have the language for what we're this conversation couldn't have happened ten years ago, twenty years ago. The language wasn't there. And the idea would be to open your mind and listen to all of these different labels. The reason these labels uh, are coming out is because everybody's trying to figure out what the hell's going on with me because we're all so different around this. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but yeah, I think open- so, yeah. just understanding nuances, like you said, it's not just male and female. Yes, there's a penis and there's a vagina and there's everything in between and people um, being willing to, to, to believe that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and be open to it. Is there anything you want to add just as we as we finish up, something you might not have gotten to or something that you might want to address? I was thinking of things while we were talking, but at the top of my head, no. Other than, um, no, I guess just, I know I get really passionate about things and I and my voice starts raising. I, I, I'm not saying I'm right about everything I'm saying. You know, I can be pushed back. I guess this is, I think, what my, the idea I'd want to say. Like on TikTok, um, because I'm on there, I'm on there so much. I love that, that. I love that platform. The reason I like it is because you know, on Twitter, on Instagram, people are following you because they want to follow you. They like you. They have found, heard about you. So they're kind of like your cheerleaders. I don't want all that. I like to be thrown on someone else's wall. I want you thrown on my wall and I want you to to challenge my head and make me rethink everything. You know, like social justice has been so, um, I have learned so much from TikTok, listening to people of color, listening to disenfranchised groups and and um, not agreeing at first, but but being thrown into their walls and they're, li- I love it. My, uh, it wastes my brain up. What I, what I wish, I guess this is what I would say. What I don't like are people who say, take that video down. You're wrong. I'm right. And I get that a lot on TikTok and they get blocked and then they make videos about me. He wasn't willing to talk to me. Go fuck yourself. I was willing to talk to you. I was totally willing to talk to you. You told me that I had to take my video down and you weren't even willing to engage in a conversation. I guess that's the, that's what I want to say is I, I, I am, I've always been willing to have a conversation. I may have a, a rigid thought about something, a strong opinion about something, but if you push and push and push and, and challenge me in a way that doesn't make me feel bad or wrong, I'm going to listen to you. And I wish that most people would be that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If people want to follow your work and see more of what you're doing, you've mentioned TikTok, where can people see that, maybe learn about the work you do, maybe book a session? Uh, they can go to everything that I um, have. All of my ha- all of my stuff is at Dr. Joe Court, D R J O E K O R T. But if you go to my website, JoeCourt.com, uh, that takes you everywhere. Uh, what I didn't say is I also uh, am a um, co-director of Modern Sex Therapy Institutes, where we train therapists. We offer PhDs 
and certifications in clinical sexology. And I love doing that because I want therapists trained in sexual health. I want people, like you, like I've been saying, I want people educated. Dr. Joe, thanks so much for taking so much time to be open, honest, share your journey, share your thoughts. Uh, it's it's been, it's been really great to have you. If you are listening to this and you're in, if you're an hour 15 in, I guarantee that this has been challenging for it's got to be a good portion of listeners. As I discovered recently on Instagram, which is really great as people were sharing what triggers them the most. I have a very diverse set of listeners and I'm actually very happy about that because I, I want to, I want to always maintain, you know, let's trigger everybody. Let's, let's get together and discuss things like Dr. Joe's been talking about. And if you're still here after an hour 16 and you disagree with absolutely everything Dr. Joe said, then congratulations. Send me a DM, reach out. I'd love to hear from you. I will then send you a golden emoji. These things are rare. They're hard to come by. Only I can issue these limited edition ones. I will send one to you. If you listen to this episode and you agreed with everything, well, not bad. It is easy to get through an episode. If you're like, yeah, preach it, Dr. Joe. That's awesome. You reach out to me as well. Love to hear from you. I'll send you a bronze emoji. You know, it is harder. So I give the gold to, to the thing that's harder. But if I missed a question, if there's something I should have addressed, send it through to me. There's de- so many different directions we could have gone. Hopefully I'll hone my craft and get a bit better at asking various different questions. Thanks so much for tuning in and I will catch you all in the next episode.